back to the girl.gov podcast. I'm your host, Rachel, and today we have Dr. Noreen Singh, who is currently an assistant professor of family medicine and community health at Mount Sinai. She's a core faculty member and maternal health lead at the Mount Sinai Family Medicine Residency Program based at the Institute for Family Health. Dr. Noreen Singh received her Bachelor of Science in Arts from UCLA, her Doctor of Medicine from Yale University School of Medicine, and her residency at UCSF Sutter Health. Dr. Noreen Singh is a full-spectrum family physician who has special interests in maternal health, sexual and reproductive health, integrative medicine, trauma-informed care, and narratives of the illness experience. She continues to enjoy the broad scope of family medicine and its vital role in advocacy for underserved communities, from inpatient medicine to labor and delivery and newborn care. Passion projects include research on quality of care and racial disparities in maternal health, redesigning the speculum and pelvic exam experience, food as medicine, and forensic medical evaluation of asylum seekers. Passionate about medical education, Dr. Singh has received multiple teaching awards and is happy to be a part of the academic community in New York. Noreen and I have a COVID-19 Q&A, and we also discuss what her experience was during the last year during the pandemic as a healthcare worker. Thank you so much to everyone who responded to our poll on Instagram who helped create some of these questions. And with that being said, thank you so much for listening and let's get into the episode. medical um does this give you like a flashback of rounds <laughs> doing yeah. and all of that definitely so you and I did rounds which was like actually pretty cool for me because I feel like obviously not being a provider but like being in on those meetings and listening to different providers was really fun and I kind of was like able to like live vicariously through you guys <laughs> like pretending <laughs> to be a doctor at some point in my life <laughs> No, it was fun. It was fun having just like dedicated educational time every week. But Mm -hmm. you also helped me out with um, maternal health prenatal things, which is still my focus. Yeah, I honestly, I think prenatal was probably like the most enjoyable part at One Medical because like Molly was obviously in charge and her and I were really close. Um, But I feel like it was never like not that it was never boring. That sounds odd, but like there was always stuff going on and like there was always stuff to learn. And I feel like all the prenatal providers are really like personable and like approachable. So I think that was really cool. But so what made you make that move from San Francisco to New York? Was that like a job opportunity or was that something just always on your mind? Yeah. Um, so originally we moved in June, 2019 from San Francisco to New York, um, because my partner had had, had decided to move his company to be fully based in New York. Mm -hmm. So that was the catalyst, but I think there was also a desire to, to live, to go back to New York. We never quite sort of got it out of our systems. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's still very much um, both of our favorite cities in the world. And we knew San Francisco and the Bay Area would always be home because both of our families are there or part of my partner's family and all of mine. So I think we knew it was sort of like we'd eventually be back on the West Coast at some point, but um, really wanted to be in New York. He moved his company there and I found this 
really great opportunity for an academic position, which was sort of the track that I had been on at the time. And I remember when, because we both left One Medical like around the same time. And I remember you telling me, I would think I was surprised that you were leaving. And um, I remember you just saying like you wanted more action, like you wanted more like you wanted like diversity, like in your patients and like in the cases that you had. Uh, Do you feel like you have that in New York now? Oh, yes. I mean, that 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 is sort of New York in a nutshell is is diversity in every aspect of the word. Mm -hmm. First of all, you know, one of the most diverse places in the world um, from the standpoint of ethnic racial diversity, um, but also just as far as the diversity of what I, what my job and my day-to-day entails Mm -hmm. is really rich uh, because of being in this academic role where I'm teaching both medical students as well as residents, new physicians and training in multiple different environments, in the clinic setting, in the hospital setting, um, in the sort of labor and delivery setting. So yeah, I, I'm, I'm having a lot of fun with the range of things that I get to do as a family doctor now in New York. Yeah. And how is it being on the other side of that? Like being able to teach people and like kind of being like a mentor to other residents and other students? I mean, I, I love it. That is sort of Primarily why I have stayed here is because of how sort of meaningful that that work is for me. I think that being able to sort of shape the next generation of physicians, especially primary care physicians, and also just to be able to have a pulse on the latest and greatest mm-hmm. as far as what's happening because medicine is constantly evolving and changing mm-hmm. and being in a teaching role really forces you to be on top of everything right <laughs> because you know there's sort of that old saying like to be able to teach it you ha- I forgot what it is but it's sort of like <laughs> see one learn one teach one right um, but you know you re- it really forces you to be much more in the know across a spectrum of scientific research and what's happening and I think the other thing that being in in a teaching role allows you to do is really hone in on on your passion projects on the mm-hmm. things you care most about and start to sort of become a mini sort of specialist in an area, which in a field like family medicine is fun because we're generalists at our core, but then we also have very specific areas that we have interests in that we get to spend extra time focusing on. And how does that work when something like COVID comes up where it's a brand new, like brand new virus, brand new pandemic, how does that merge into your teaching practices? Yeah, I mean, so I think First of all, the, you know, everything that I experienced during the last year, um, I know and imagine that the resident physicians that I work with experience on over multiple magnitudes because I had the opportunity to be in and out of the hospital, whereas many of them were fully, fully based there for days, weeks, nights on end. And to be in a position where you're working 80 plus hour work weeks in one of already one of the most stressful times in one's career, which is residency, and to not have any respite because you're in the middle of a pandemic, I think 
gives me awe and respect and also just a lot of perspective um, as, as far as my own experiences and then juxtaposing them to the experiences of resident physicians who I'm teaching going through this at the same time as me alongside me. Mm -hmm. Um, It also humbles you because, you know, you're working alongside one another, which at the beginning in a setting where there's a lot of uncertainty and we're so used to as teachers, as professors, we're so used to being able to talk on subjects with certainty Mm -hmm. and with research to back up what we're what we're teaching. And this was a setting where we had none of that Mm -hmm. at the beginning. Um, So to be kind of treading in those waters together was also, yeah, just a a really humbling experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like I can imagine you guys kind of just being bonded on just that level alone of kind of just going through something super new to everyone. And I think even just to the general public, like regular schmegular people like me, I feel like it's, it is something that like humbles you because you're going through it with like your friends and your family and stuff. But I think as a provider, like, I think one thing that really came out of COVID at least in like a positive light is just like the respect for providers. Because I remember before I even worked at one medical, like I was always kind of like, embarrassed or nervous of like going into doctor's visits or, you know, you're with someone that you don't know, but you essentially are supposed to trust. Um, And I remember for me and a lot of other people, my friend Gloria had just started at one medical at the same time as me. And her and I have had conversations of like, it's not that I didn't trust doctors before, but you see a whole different side of what providers go through and the relationship that they build with their patients and just working at a provider's office. So like seeing that outside and then seeing everything that you guys have gone through the last year is admirable in itself. (laughs) I think that's like, it's insane. I like, I, I honestly like knowing you, I feel like you're so tough. Like you're really strong. Like I've known that because I think everyone who worked at Soma knew that, (laughs) but, but I mean, like just having to go through that and especially in New York, cause like, I feel like New York was the hardest hit in the very beginning. And you guys were almost not like the example, but like you guys were the ones who were going through it so hard. And I I can't imagine going through that. That's yeah. I mean, it was, I don't think it's something that I or anyone who really had kind of a front row seat Mm -hmm. to the beginning or the middle or wherever we are now, this part of the pandemic, I don't think any of us will ever forget it Mm -hmm. um, in terms of the impact it's had on just our mental health, our careers, our perspective of Mm -hmm health and infectious disease and community. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm lucky to have, you know, had some time in New York to get <laughs> to get sort of calibrated before it hit. But I think it's just, it's really hard to fully articulate or write about what that sort of pain and that trauma and the fear and the uncertainty of the last year has been like for anyone in healthcare that's been up close and personal to it, not just providers, not just physicians, but mm-hmm. nurses and techs and EMTs, because it was, yeah, it was jarring and it's still jarring. And I don't know that many of us have really processed much of that 
grief and that sort of um, the the multiple emotions that defined the last year. And so, yeah, you say that I'm strong, but <laughs> we felt like yeah. there were points where many of us sort of felt like we were crumbling and we, right. we didn't see an end in sight. And I'm grateful that now I'm in a, you know, we're in a place that I do actually see, I see something, I see, I see a little trickle of light. Okay, cool. <laughs> I think like that for a very long time. That is one of our questions. I mean, yeah. I mean, we can even like address it now. I think a lot of, for a lot of people, especially people who aren't providers, they don't necessarily see an end in sight or they don't really see one coming anytime soon. Yeah. Um, but from what you're saying that at least hopefully soon or at some point there will be an end to this and we will get back to normal or quote unquote normal yeah. at some point a new version of normal. Right. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, I, I have the utmost respect and gratitude for science and scientists for coming up with the solutions that we now have, both from the standpoint of how we treat people who are hospitalized with really mm -hmm. severe COVID and, you know, us being a lot better at it now than we were a year ago when we didn't really know what we were doing. And also from the standpoint of vaccines, I mean, I know we're, we'll get into it more, but it's just sort of remarkable that we are in March, 2021, a year after the countrywide uh, shutdowns. And we're in a place that we're seeing significant declines in cases and hospitalizations and deaths um, that coincide with the introduction of vaccines in our population of hundreds of thousands or sorry millions of Americans who have already been vaccinated a substantial proportion of the population and I, I think that we are heading we are heading to a better place. We, we definitely are. But I think that we also have to not let our guard down right. um, like Texas is. Yes. Oh my God. That is one of our questions. Cause I think I'm, I don't know. I, I'm not going to get into politics because I'm not here to like spill my political agenda on anybody, <laughs> but um yeah, I think it is really concerning seeing states like Texas, like lifting the stay-at-home orders, lifting yeah. the mask mandates. I mean, how how does that make you feel as a provider, someone who has what you were saying earlier is like you felt at one point you were about to crumble and you think that, you know, you see a light at the end of the tunnel and then we have people like this making decisions that could ultimately affect when this pandemic ends. Yeah, it. I mean, there are a lot of adjectives I can use, but I think the ones that come to mind when I first saw the news about Texas lifting its mask mandate were frustration or being frustrated, being angry, feeling a little bit hopeless because, you know, it's millions of people are trying to do the right thing, right? Mm -hmm. are, are staying at home, are homeschooling their children, are you know having to work remotely and balance the loss of income for many people the loneliness right. like it feels like all of this collective pain and effort that we've put forward over the last year will you know to some degree have been for 
not for nothing, but will have been compromised by letting our guard down so quickly and cavalierly and carelessly as Texas is doing. Right. Because, you know, the, the decline in numbers that we see are a reflection of multiple things. They're a reflection of increasing community immunity from both vaccination as well as natural infection, people who've already been infected and aren't getting reinfected, Mm -hmm. as well as what all of the people like yourself are doing, distancing and masking. Um, So to to just sort of give up on that prematurely when case counts are still much higher than they were, you know, for example, for, you know, over the summer last year, Mm -hmm. just feels really, really irresponsible. Yeah. I mean, I think that's irresponsible is probably a great word to explain that. And I I mean, to me, like somewhat, I I mean, you make a great point is like for people who are staying at home and for people who are wearing their mask and are social distancing. I know so many friends who like haven't seen their family in like months, even a year. And I think for myself, it's easy because I'm in Rhode Island. I know nobody. I know my, my sister and her husband and my aunt and that's about it. So for me, it's easy not to like break out of like what I've been doing for the last year, but maybe like, what's your advice for people who are seeing others, not only Texas, just like I have friends who I still see going out. I, I see people all over social media going out, doing their own thing um, and pretending like pretty much nothing is going on and everything's back to normal. But yeah, what would you, what would your advice be for people who like feel like they're about to break and have been doing so well and have, you know, are, again, like feeling that they're about to crumble and they're willing to ultimately risk that amazing streak that they're having because of what other people are doing, like Texas. Yeah. I mean, I think that I get it, you know, I mean, just because we've been up close and personal to this as healthcare workers doesn't mean we don't feel the same way that we don't want to hug our friends and go out and go dancing and Mm -hmm. do all the things that once felt that we once took for granted. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's really, really important that as we're in this place that we're starting to see some progress and some improvement that we remember that we're not there yet. We're heading there, but if we let up now, it, it will, it will, it, it will be taking several steps back. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that there are ways that we can start to safely gather like the CDC just so you know I know that um the Biden administration is now saying that they're hoping that we have available vaccines for every American by the beginning by you know by early summer and if we went by that sort of rationale assuming that the actual um distribution and 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 administration of the vaccines to people can happen in an efficient enough way then come summer, we can be in a much better place if a substantial portion of the population is vaccinated, if we're spending a lot of time outdoors. The CDC just released some guidance saying that vaccinated folks can safely gather together indoors in small groups while still continuing to mask outdoor, out in public spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but even the fact that we're in a place that 
the CDC is coming out and saying, hey, if you're with other, you know, similarly vaccinated folks, it's okay now. We think that it's safe to be able to have small gatherings and to start to return slowly to some semblance of normal, but we can't just like put our foot on the gas and go full speed ahead. We right. have to inch towards that place. Otherwise, all of these efforts, all of this pain and loneliness and sacrifice will have been for what? Right. I'm hoping that people will soon realize that. And I think also too, it's like, it sucks because a lot of people, I think, look at it like out of sight, out of mind. Like if it's not affecting me, then why go through the efforts of not seeing my friends or not seeing my family or not going out and living your normal life? I think that's a really unfortunate mindset to have because there's so many people who are struggling and it, it is very selfish. And I'm just, I'm happy to hear that you think that there's a light at the end of the tunnel. And I'm hoping that people will have a change of heart because it's just, it's not going to do any good for anybody. And I mean, just on that topic of Texas and the CDC, I know the CDC gives out their comments and their guidelines, but I'm curious to know what you think about how states have, each state has their own rollout plan. So I know in California, like both my parents have gotten the vaccine. My brother's gotten the vaccine. I have friends who's gotten the vaccine. And here in Rhode Island, I think we just opened up. I think it was like 65 and up and that's it. So how do you feel like that will affect not only ending the pandemic, but like kind of just taking it seriously overall, I guess, for each state? Yeah, I mean, I, this is a personal opinion, I think it can be debated heavily by different public health experts, but I do wish there was a more centralized, federally coordinated response from the standpoint of the vaccine rollout across the country, because you're right, we see such big differences between New York, where if you have high blood pressure, you are eligible to get the vaccine regardless of how old you are. Um, or, you know, versus Maryland versus Rhode Island versus Texas. And I, I, I do wish that there was a more centralized approach mm-hmm. so that like you, like you said, um, so that it, it feels more equitable across the country. Right. And I know that now that the Senate has, has approved the stimulus bill, I'm hoping that, you know, we can start to spearhead more efforts, more resources to be able to roll out the vaccine efforts uh, in a way that we speed up heading towards the summer. And, you know, because ultimately, the more the population that we have that's vaccinated, the closer we will get (laughs) to a semblance of normalcy. (laughs) Right. Yeah, I think my brain in general, like just always goes towards, I feel like so many issues could be resolved if we were on like a federal agreements to a lot of laws and bills that we have passed. I don't know. It's just kind of crazy because I mean, again, like personal opinion, like it, it seems like it would be more equitable and smart to roll out a one vaccine rollout and make sure that all Americans are feeling like they're safe and they're protected and they're, you know, prioritized in the same amount as anyone else. And, and that it's not, it's not, it doesn't take Herculean efforts to get an appointment. Like I think what I'm seeing at least right now in New York is once a batch of vaccine appointments are opened up, Mm -hmm. 
they go within fit like thousands of appointments disappear within 15 minutes which requires you to be on a computer or some sort of source of internet refreshing and aware maybe following the vaccine accounts on twitter being very highly savvy which you know a lot of our most vulnerable sort of populations elderly folks that may not have consistent access to internet or maybe know where to look and how to look maybe continuing to miss that window to grab an appointment because right. they're, you know, um, so I'm hoping that some of the efforts in all of the, across all of the states will include outreach to some of these communities that aren't as easily able to schedule themselves. Mm -hmm. Outreach to communities of color, which have been disproportionately affected, not only disproportionately affected by COVID infection, but also getting disproportionately less vaccinated. Right. Yes, I feel like you bring up a good topic. I know this is probably like a loaded question might take like some good thought, but just from your overall experience, I mean, I think we all know like people of color are disproportionately being affected by COVID, but I mean, your experience in the hospital, what has that been like to be a woman of color and seeing people of color being affected at crazy amounts and kind of just having to like personally be there for those people how how has that kind of affected you as a provider um i think it's it's been just one of the most disheartening parts about the whole experience disheartening but also not surprising given the landscape of healthcare in this country right. um mm -hmm. and especially somewhere as diverse as new york city where we saw you know, entire communities in Queens and certain sort of sub pockets of boroughs uh, affected because of the nature of, you know, multi-generational living, because of perhaps the percentage of those communities that function as essential workers who don't have a choice to stay home and work remotely, but need to go out and right. continue delivering food. Um, operating public transportation, doing things that are very public facing without adequate protection and getting infected and coming home and infecting their family members who live in close quarters, um, mm -hmm. not having the privilege to be able to quarantine when one family member gets sick. Right. Not having the, you know, just the, the same tools that other communities may have. And I think that reflects systemic structures that have made it that way, which, you know, explain why people of color are at higher risk for a lot of health conditions. This is, it's, a it's a sort of structure of the social construct of, of how we've allowed certain communities to not have access to healthy food within a short distance, not have access to parks to be able to go outside and exercise, clean air, clean water. Um, and, and so I think the pandemic and the way it's disproportionately affected communities of color that have gotten sicker, died at higher rates, mm -hmm. are not getting vaccinated at, as equitably as other communities is just a reflection of the already underlying problem right. uh, in, in sort of in, in healthcare in the US. It just sort of ripped it open. Yeah, off the layer and right. expose what was already existing underneath. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I honestly, I feel like the last year, just in the social environment and the political environment that we're currently in and we're in, I feel like it, it definitely does 
peel back like that curtain of issues that were there that people I think didn't really want to acknowledge. And I think that kind of brings up the question of like, if there are people out there who are questioning whether or not to get this vaccine, if they're questioning like whether or not it's legitimate. And I, I hate acknowledging conspiracy theories because I know it's not healthy and I know that it's not productive, but I mean, there are a lot of people who are thinking that they're being microchipped, which by the way is weird because it's like, you have your iPhone, you have your social security number. Like there's so many other things that like people can track you down. And like, also just the whole issue of people thinking it's going to change your DNA. Like, I mean, what are your thoughts on that and how, for someone who's on the fence, how can you help them? kind of have like the actual science and the actual facts behind it instead of listening to conspiracy theories and all of that. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so let's break it down. First, I have to say, I'm glad that you're asking. And I think I'd encourage people to ask reputable sources and to look for um, reputable sources in asking these questions because it's okay. It's okay and it's natural to have questions about something that's new that's being introduced to you. Mm -hmm. That's okay. But I think the sort of excessive reliance on unreliable sources on the internet that claim to be health experts is just really disappointing. And I think that, you know, um, you know, there's clearly an epidemic of misinformation. From the very beginning, a lot of misinformation has been circulating about the vaccines, about the disease itself, and the conspiracy theories around all of it. And there've been a lot of bad players operating these misinformation campaigns. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have to say, as a physician and a healthcare worker that has been truly shaken to my core and traumatized by the last year, mm-hmm. coming home at the end of the day and then fighting misinformation is exhausting. It's sort of the last thing that any of us wants to do. And I think that that aspect of this has been sort of like the cherry on top of how demoralizing the experience has been (laughs) from fighting in the daytime, from fighting burnout to then fighting misinformation. Mm -hmm. So I'm glad that you're asking and we're talking about this because I think the more we can put out factual information and reputable sources, hopefully the more comfortable people feel. So I think one of the most common points of concern has to do with how quickly the vaccines were developed. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that's maybe a good place to start in addressing um, sort of vaccine hesitancy is, you know, people think that the vaccine was rushed, but it actually wasn't. It was sort of this collaborative effort on a global level, which never happens, fully financed, no red tape. (laughs) And we had a running start because, you know, I think, the idea that mRNA technology is new is actually not true. We have been researching coronaviruses since the SARS, the first SARS outbreak. So we, you know, we scientists have been, have been researching this for more than a decade. And it's just now that we were able to sort of put it into use because of, for, because of the fact that we had this collaborative effort, because of the fact that this was, the FDA's number one priority. Every other project got put on hold to prioritize a a safe and effective COVID vaccine because the entire global economy depended on it. Um, So 
even though, you know, it seems like this was unbelievably fast, it's be, it's for a lot of reasons. It's because of a coordinated effort. It's because of it being fully, fully funded without barriers mm -hmm. and all the normal sort of bureaucratic red tape processes that normally are part of vaccine development mm -hmm. um, were much more streamlined because of the importance of the, of developing uh, a safe, effective vaccine as quickly as possible. And, you know, from the standpoint of cutting corners, which I think is sort of the natural assumption of, well, if something was made so quickly, clearly some corners must have been cut, which compromised safety. Um, the sort of cutting of the time and the development of this vaccine is sort of the result of the fact that we already had this existing body of a decade of research around this that that already existed and just picking up where we left off. And then also, like I mentioned, just no financial limitations. There's just this enormous funding efforts. Um, so, you know, if, if we had these kinds of efforts apply to any other public health effort, we would be in a much better place with a lot of other chronic diseases. Right. It just happened to be that this was the most important thing for the world at the moment. Mm -hmm. um, and then it's also worth noting that vaccines are actually treated even more strictly from the safety standpoint mm -hmm. than prescription drugs as far as, far as development goes. Um, because they are given, right, so vaccines are given to healthy people to prevent disease. So they're judged much more harshly from the standpoint of safety parameters in clinical trials and for authorization than prescription drugs are, right? Because prescription drugs theoretically are given to sick people to treat illness or disease, whereas vaccines are given to healthy people to prevent disease. So there are a lot more barriers in the safety assurance process um, with vaccines. So I think that's also important, important to, to keep in mind. And, and safety is obviously paramount, which is why the first COVID vaccine trials for Pfizer and Moderna started with adults first and excluded pregnant people and children. Right. And in those, you know, 70 plus thousand people in the phase three trials, there were no serious side effects. That's, that's a really big deal. Um, you know, there were sort of common side effects, which we'll talk about, but no serious side effects, no deaths from the vaccines. And, you know, I think we're also now starting to see some real life data because of uh, the fact that millions of Americans and uh, people around the world have already been immunized, millions more every day. So, you know, from the standpoint of how would I address, you know, people that are on the fence, I think it's important to understand the background around why this happened so quickly. But but the fact that it's not actually a bad thing that it happened so quickly, it's just a reflection of what is possible when we put focus, energy, and money and collaboration into a, a scientific effort. And I think it's important to keep in mind that safety is paramount and, and even more highly regulated than prescription drugs. So that has been very closely paid attention to. Um, and then I think it's also, you know, important to, to think about, I think, sort of alluding to this earlier, I think um, a lot of young people, especially who are healthy, tend to feel a bit more immune from the standpoint of, well, if, you know, COVID is unlikely to kill me and I'm just, you know, maybe I'll get a mild infection, no big deal, I'm not scared. Mm -hmm. There tends to be this sense of sort of more of a nonchalant 
approach to it because you're not afraid for your own life. And I think while there has been a lot of appropriate focus on the risk of death associated with COVID and um, the populations that it affects most, I think the one thing that we don't talk as much about that is important for everyone, but especially young people to keep in mind is, is the, are the other complications. Um, COVID is a multi-organ infection that has the potential to cause a whole spectrum of disease in, in organ systems across the body, heart attacks, heart rhythm abnormalities, blood clots, strokes, kidney failure, dementia-like alterations in thinking and cognition, overwhelming whole body inflammation that we can see in otherwise healthy young well people. And now we're just starting to understand this phenomenon of what we're calling long COVID syndrome or people that have had ongoing symptoms after recovering from a COVID infection months ago, even if it was really mild. And in some research studies, up to a third of people after having an infection, even mild, continue to experience a sort of range of symptoms, including shortness of breath and brain fog and fatigue and depression and anxiety. Um, that lingered months after infection. So I think it's also really important to think about, you know, the, the fact that, yes, maybe if you're young and healthy, it won't kill you, but you're, you may still have a very challenging experience that will affect the quality of your life with it. And, and it's, you know, it, it's been sometimes hard to predict which healthy young people it affects in that way. Mm-hmm. And I have definitely seen the spectrum, you know, start taking care of people in their young 20s to 30s, previous marathon runners who haven't been able to run for months, mm-hmm. people who've had to quit their jobs or go on leave because they feel like they can't think clearly. So I think, you know, I at the beginning of all of this, I used to joke around like last March, early March, I remember I used to joke around and say, oh, I just want to get it and get it over with right. and so I can be immune. Yeah. And after the horror of what I've seen in the last year, I am even more terrified of getting it than I was, you know, months ago. Right. Um, even more grateful for the vaccine for that reason. So I think it's important to also keep that in mind that, you know, there are other effects beyond just severe disease and death that are have real life implications on quality of life for, for young folks too. Um, and then, you know, at the end too, it's also just going back to the what we were talking about earlier, this is what is going to help us return to a semblance of normalcy in our lives, Mm -hmm. right? I think that from a public health standpoint, it's really important to have incentive to get vaccinated and to hope and to sort of start to get back to normal. And this is what's going to get us there. Mm -hmm. I don't think that it's that COVID is going to mysteriously disappear, but, you know, the virus can't continue to mutate if it, isn't replicating. And so in other words, the virus stops making new variants if it stops infecting people. Mm-hmm. So the less people it has to infect, the better <laughs> the better position we're in. Right. And I think, I mean, we have seen like in other countries like Australia, I think is one of them, New Zealand, um, where they really did take COVID and quarantine very seriously. And, you know, they're able to go back to normal life you know they're able to go hang out with their friends they're able to go out in public like as if not like as if nothing ever happened but as if like things are back to normal so I feel like it has been proven that if you do take it seriously it will work and it will go away but unfortunately for whatever reason the United States is just 
not on board with that. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think that it, the thing is it's, you know, it, it's, they've been able to effectively sort of like protect their borders and, and most of the population has been compliant with the public safety measures. It's sort of a different situation here. But it's, you know, we're also seeing real life data um, from, you know, other countries like Israel, for example, as far as the question of, okay, well, are the vaccines even working? Mm -hmm. Like, is there a clear sort of sense that that they're doing what, what they're intended to do? And it's, it's kind of amazing what we see so far. Um, one point of criticism that's often made in scientific research is that sometimes the results that we see in clinical trials and research doesn't actually reflect what we see in the real world right. when the interventions applied because in the real world it's a much more diverse population and there's differences in how for example a vaccine might be administered compared to like a strict controlled environment in a research study mm -hmm. but um, Israel recently published data on the experience with the Pfizer vaccine in in about 600,000 of people that had been vaccinated between December and February. And it's really incredible because it very closely matches what we saw in the Pfizer's phase three clinical trial. So, so far data is looking very promising. Like I think after the second dose, the vaccine was effective up to 92% for getting any COVID infection and 94% for getting symptomatic COVID. Right. And I think 87% for hospitalization and 92% for severe disease. Mm -hmm. um, and this was also, these results were also taken from a time that the B117 variant was circulating in Israel and caused mm -hmm. a surge in infection. So it seems like there's still some strong protection against that particular variant with the with the Pfizer vaccine that we now see real life data that's really encouraging on. Um, so that's where I'm taking a lot of hope. Yeah. And I, I that brings up a good point because I think it it wouldn't make sense to have just one company make a global vaccine. I feel like that's it's unreasonable. It will never happen. It wouldn't even, I mean it maybe it could, but it wouldn't happen in the amount of time that we need it to. So we have Moderna, Pfizer, and Johnson and Johnson now that was just FDA approved. Since they all have different effectiveness and yeah. you know they all have their own clinical trials, how can we ensure which maybe might not even be a possibility, but how can we ensure that it will quote unquote, end the pandemic when, you know, different demographics and different countries or cities are getting different vaccines with different effectiveness? Yeah. Well, so I think the thing is, when you look at the, the factor that we care about the most, mm -hmm. which is the risk of getting severe disease that needs to be treated in an intensive care unit mm -hmm. and the risk of death from COVID infection, when you look at that parameter, the efficacy of the three vaccines, Pfizer, Moderna, J Johnson & Johnson is nearly identical. Mm -hmm. That and that I think we have to remember is the most important factor here because you know we have other circulating coronaviruses that are like the common cold. We have the flu. We haven't upended our lives because of those infections, right? right. They affect a minority of the population. We have we do, you know, we have the flu vaccine every winter that we offer, but, you know, the 
the contagiousness of this COVID-19 infection and the fatality and sort of way it's affected people in a much more severe way than any respiratory virus that is has been circulating previously is what has made it, you know, is what has pulled the world to a stop. Mm -hmm. And so if we can stop hospitals from getting overwhelmed, if we can stop people from needing to be in the ICU and from dying from COVID, if we can make it, bring it down to a manageable level in just a small percentage of the population and maybe have sort of vaccine variations that can protect a substantial portion of the population against it, then we're in a place where we can start to return to normal. Mm -hmm. And so that factor of severe disease and death is actually um, the protection offered by J&J, Moderna, Pfizer is very similar. Okay. So that's why I think, you know, when offered a vaccine, I don't think it's worth waiting for the one that, you know, sounds the sexiest. <laughs> I, think, I think if you have the opportunity to get one of the three, get it as soon as you can. Just get the one that you can get the soonest. And, and that was my approach too. I had the option of getting um, at the time in December, both Pfizer or Moderna. And I just went for the one that would give me the soonest appointment and didn't mm -hmm. think twice about it. Okay. That's uh, actually really comforting because I, I feel uh, like, because for someone who isn't like familiar with public health or familiar with how clinical tri trials work or anything like that, yeah. I think it, it, it could be troubling to some people like seeing different um, conclusions to trials mm -hmm. or kind of just like the effectiveness from it. And so that's actually really comforting and it does make sense. And I think for someone like for me, like someone who, um, you know, I am still young, I am still healthy at this point. Yeah. I would rather just get any vaccine so I could be yeah. like immune to it at some point. And right. I think, and so, um, my sister, Natalie wanted me to ask this question. Um, she, she was wondering, so, um, right now, as far as the rollouts go, they're going to certain demographics, they're going to certain groups. What if we had enough vaccines to vaccine everyone with one dose? Let's say Johnson & Johnson wasn't, because Johnson & Johnson is just one dose, right? So let's say that wasn't an option. It was just Moderna and Pfizer. And if everyone in the world can get one dose, do you feel like it would be more substantial or beneficial to do that to lower hospitalizations, lower deaths, or does it make more sense to make sure as far as like when you get the vaccine of how immune you are to um, the virus with just one dose? I mean, do you feel like that makes sense? Do you think that that could have been an option or at this point where we kind of just like trying to get it out and trying to make sure everyone had a vaccine as quickly as possible? Yeah, no, I mean, I think the problem is that based on the research um, that was done in the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, which were the first ones that were given the emergency use authorization in the US, the efficacy needed to dramatically reduce hospitalizations and deaths occurred after two doses. So I don't think that we would get the robust kind of community reduction in both transmission as well as severe reduction in, reduction in severe disease and death um, based on the clinical trials that were done, the phase three clinical trials that were done for Pfizer and Moderna. Um, you know, I think there's, 
there's varying estimates of it being maybe up to 40 to 50% effective after one dose, but I don't, but, you know, as far as the, the, the levels needed to reach, you know, what we call herd immunity, but also the levels most importantly to protect vulnerable populations, mm -hmm. um, for John's for rather for Pfizer and Moderna, I think based on the research that we have at the moment, two doses would have been, are needed. Okay. That said, there is, you know, that that's based on the research we have right now. That said, there is some emerging evidence that people who've previously been infected with COVID, which is a large part of the population, mm -hmm. um, you know, they mount an immune response, but then that immune response doesn't last forever. It seems to last several months but then may may decrease mm -hmm. um, over time, and for that reason, you know, it's still recommended that people who've been infected get vaccinated some period months later. Mm -hmm. um, but there's some emerging evidence that people who've been infected earlier in the pandemic who are getting vaccinated may only need one dose because they may already have had a substantial enough immune response from having naturally been infected. Mm -hmm. And then you add the vaccine sort of stimulation on top of that and they may be good to go. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, but that hasn't been officially released yet. Okay. And those people should still either way, even if you have had COVID, you should, you should still be getting your second dose, right? Um, the people who have been infected, who are now getting vaccinated yes. mm -hmm. as of right now. Yes. The CDC hasn't really put out any formal recommendations or guidance saying that those people can, can, um, are okay just getting one dose. But mm -hmm. I think we, we may, my suspicion is that we might be heading in that direction based on preliminary data that we're seeing. Okay. Um, but to go back to something you said about Johnson and Johnson too, mm -hmm. I think the other thing to consider in comparing the three is, you know, what you said, which is that Johnson and Johnson is just one dose and mm -hmm. the sort of full efficacy of, um, Pfizer and Moderna come after the second dose and come a week or two after the second dose. Whereas in the Johnson and Johnson trials, most people had a robust immune response just two weeks after the shot with significant protection by one month, by like day 30. Okay. So, you know, for people that may be in, in potentially high risk situations, who may be traveling for work, who may be working in a grocery store, driving a bus, doing things that are high risk where they can't necessarily afford to wait, mm -hmm. that may be another consideration is you'll be protected quicker with just that one shot. Okay. So something else to consider. And I think just on that topic of someone just getting one dose for people who, I mean, I don't know, maybe this isn't the greatest question, but for people who do want to travel or do want to see their loved ones, how safe is it to do those things after just getting one dose? Or should we be waiting to get the second dose? Even if you haven't had COVID before, if you had, yeah, I mean, how safe is it? Should we be doing it or should we be still cautious? Yeah. Totally. I have wanted to go home and hug my parents for the longest time. <laughs> and I was tempted to between dose one and two, but I didn't. I think that the, the reason for the hesitance is that, well, first of all, like we were just talking about the full kind of efficacy, the maximum robust efficacy for Pfizer and Moderna come after two doses. Mm -hmm. um, and after waiting this long, I, you know, I would 
would be very hesitant to to sort of drop the guard early and and expose myself or expose other people after just one dose of suboptimal efficacy. But I think more importantly, we don't the piece that we don't yet have good research on and it's coming, but we don't yet know whether or not vaccinated people, whether it's one dose or two doses, can still spread the virus to people that are unvaccinated. Mm-hmm. Um, so the research is still unclear on exactly how well being vaccinated prevents the virus from taking sort of from um, landing in an immunized person's nose and then still being able to transmit it to others. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the prevention of transmission was not something that was studied specifically in the, the data that we have right now. The endpoints that were looked at were mainly how many of the people that were vaccinated ended up getting symptomatic COVID infection, ended up being hospitalized, ended up dying, you know, from the, from um, uh, exposure after being vaccinated. Okay. Um, But we didn't, we don't yet have data on how likely were vaccinated people to transmit COVID to other unvaccinated people. We have some preliminary research that seems to be promising that, that suggests that the vaccines probably prevent transmission to a certain degree, but we just don't know the magnitude yet and it's not 100%. So for that reason, I think if you were to really optimize and reduce the likelihood of transmitting any kind of COVID that you may have been exposed to, to other people, it's better to be fully vaccinated. Okay. And to try and pod yourself with other people that are vaccinated. (laughs) Yeah, no, that definitely makes sense. And I think a big question too is, will this be similar to a flu shot where we're getting it every year or is this something that you just get now and you don't, you never need to worry about it again? Yeah, no, that's a really good question. So I think that in the, the main reason why we would probably have to have, um, if we were to have new sort of, uh, versions of the vaccine coming out Mm -hmm. are, are based are two, two things. One is figuring out how, what the duration of immunity we get from this back from these vaccines, the currently available Pfizer, Moderna, Johnson and Johnson vaccines, we don't yet know, right? It's very early. The clinical trials um, only followed people for a certain number of months post vaccine. We don't yet know six months out, nine months out, one year out, how well protected are you compared to, you know, three months out. Um, so that's one piece is figuring out how long lasting is, is the immunity you get from the vaccine. And then the second piece is um, new variants, coverage for new variants of the, of the virus that is constantly mutating and, and figuring out how to evade or sort of hide from the vaccine. So the new variants, I think, pose a challenge, but but it's it's a small one. And both Pfizer and Moderna have said that they can develop booster shots within just six weeks that would work against the new variants. And I think Moderna has already started one that targets the South African sort of variant. Um, and and yeah, and, and from a scientific perspective, developing new vaccine va- um, new vaccine versions to cover these new variants is actually pretty straightforward. They just kind of swap the new genomic material for the old and and the FDA has already kind of released guidance to streamline that process. Mm -hmm. So then in that case, it may use the same approach that it uses for flu shots because every year, every season, the flu shot is a new version that targets what 
scientists anticipate will be the circulating strain. So it's possible that that may, you know, that may become the case for this particular COVID um, vaccine, depending on how long it lasts and how um, aggressive these new variants are and, and needing to get coverage against them. Right. And I think what, are there any people who shouldn't be getting the vaccine? Like, I think, um, I have read some articles maybe about like certain pre-existing conditions or people who have or have had cancer and for anyone who is getting the vaccine as well, kind of what symptoms should they be expecting before going into it? Yeah. And so, um, so as far as people who shouldn't be really, I mean, the truth is most people are eligible to get the vaccine and there isn't, there aren't a lot of um, sort of hard and fast restrictions. Mm -hmm. So one population is kids under age 16, only because they were not included in the trials. Mm -hmm. um, so we don't, we don't have safety efficacy data on um, people under 16 yet, but right. I think that those are starting to happen. Um, and then people who've had a history of severe allergic reactions or anaphylaxis mm -hmm. um, to any component of the COVID vaccines are people who obviously should not be getting it. Um, and people with other types of, um, or who've had severe reactions to other vaccines mm -hmm. should discuss with their doctor because um, there's, you know, a very short list, which is easily Googleable, <laughs> Googleable of the components of the vaccines. Um, and so you could easily see, you know, for example, polyethylene glycol is, you know, is there a particular component that someone has a known allergy to? How severe is that allergy? And is that, you know, and then weighing the risk benefits of, you know, do they want to premedicate with something to reduce the likelihood of the allergy? And most, most vaccination centers are requiring that people kind of sit and wait for 15 to 30 minutes after getting the vaccine just to monitor them and make sure they don't have any kind of severe reaction. Mm -hmm. um, but those are things to consider. Um, as far as people with pre-existing conditions or chronic disease, I mean, most of those people may be at higher risk of severe disease mm -hmm. um, if they were to get COVID. So the benefits for most, for most people, like for example, current cancer, autoimmune disease, the benefits of vaccines most of the time outweigh any theoretical risk. And I think the, the main consideration has been that people who are immunocompromised mm -hmm. may not be able to mount as strong of an immune response as someone whose immune system is functioning fine. Or for example, someone who, people who take steroids may not, that may suppress the ability of their immune system to have as adequate of a response to the vaccine as we would desire. But that doesn't mean that they can't get it. It just means it's, you know, it's, it's worth a conversation with their doctor around what are the best sort of, what's the best um, setting and timing for the vaccine to kind of optimize how strongly and robustly their immune system responds to it and does what it needs to do, which is mm -hmm. kind of create a game plan for what to do if it sees the virus. Right. Um, but yeah, but they're not excluded. And then the other thing is pregnant people, even though they were not included 
included in the clinical trials are not excluded from getting the vaccine. Both, most expert groups, including the American College of OBGYNs, the Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine Doctors, the American Academy of Breastfeeding, Breastfeeding Medicine have all come out and said that pregnant people, breastfeeding people should not be excluded from receiving the vaccine and that it should just be a conversation with their doctor um, about pros cons and, and, and a de their decision about whether or not an individual wants to get it while they're pregnant. Right. Yeah. And I think, cause I, I have some friends who are kind of questioning whether they should get it or not. And I think it's more so of like their personal outlook on medicine and doctors and things that you had talked about earlier of just, you know, people having the concern of like the fast turnaround time or so be it. But from all the information that you're giving me now, like, I think me being a believer in science, like I, like I'm 100% confident in this vaccine, no matter which variant or which uh, company I get it from. And I think this is really good information for someone to have, especially for people who like are on the fence about it, because I think, unfortunately, there are so many people out there who are giving expert opinions who are not experts. And so, um, and I, I think it's insane. And I, I don't want to like jump back to the conspiracy theories, but you know, there, there are, there is that myth of people who have died of COVID who are technically saying that they're marked as COVID, but that's not the actual reason why they died or vice versa. Um, what, what is your opinion on that? Cause I, I know it's a loaded question, but I think well, a lot of people are just looking not at though. I mean, like you're responsible, first of all, as, as physicians, we take an oath to do no harm at the beginning of our careers. And most of us abide by that. Yeah. <laughs> and when we have to fill out a death certificate for one of our patients, we have to write what is factually sort of correct and the, the most accurate reflection of the events that transpired that led to someone's death. So if that was cardiac arrest from an arrhythmia or you know their heart stopping from a fatal heart rhythm abnormality, which they, they had as a result of a COVID infection, then that's a layered sort of um, uh, death, uh, causes of death, right? There's multiple factors in there, but ultimately it comes down to what caused the um, events that led to someone's death, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, I think, I, I don't know, I think like we talked about earlier, I don't know who the bad players are that began these rumors, but there is no truth to them. Mm -hmm. I think it's, it's ridiculous to suggest that. And it's frankly kind of insulting to mm -hmm. people who, have given their lives. I mean, there's a lot of, there have been a lot of physician suicides over the last year right. um, over the trauma of, of the experiences that we've witnessed. And so, yeah, I, I don't think anyone has sort of any malfeasance when filling out a death certificate from, you know, someone that has suffered complications of COVID or not. You know, it may have been that they had COVID, but their true cause of death was something else. And there's no, there's no sort of personal financial incentive for that mm -hmm. at all. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, I think it is crazy too. Cause like the data is there one. And I think what some people don't realize is even though COVID might not have 
personally affected you. It has personally affected so many other people in this country and globally. And Mm -hmm. I think that alone should create some sort of empathy for providers and patients and anyone who has gone through losing a loved one. And I, I, yeah, I just, I can't, I don't know. I just, I can't imagine the stuff that you and your colleagues go through on a daily basis. And I'm, I'm happy that things have kind of let up a little bit because I think, you know, it hopefully suicides and providers does go down. And I, I hope that I, I don't know. It's so hard. Cause it's like, providers should be those ones who like get that, um, like support and they should be the ones who are given like that immediate attention when things like that are going on, because you guys are literally on the front lines. And yeah, I mean, I think people have all been battling this in different ways. Like people have been battling, feeling the sequela, uh, the sort of consequences of the last year in the privacy of their homes, through the loss of their jobs, through the way that their children have sort of maybe um, experienced less social engagement and how that's affected them. Um, and so, you know, through the essential workers who've continued to show up. So I think the sort of the heroism and the appreciation um, goes out to more than just healthcare workers on the front lines. But I think it just, um, I think it's just the concept and the idea that there's malfeasance and, and, and just sort of harmful um, falsifying intentions mm-hmm. is just so baffling to me when I think about the fact that many people, many nurses, doctors, tax, other people will have left their careers after experiencing what they did this year. Right. Um, that, you know, that we had to, I mean, I still get flashbacks and nightmares of watching how just like how devastating it is to watch people die alone. Mm -hmm. Like, I think the most heartbreaking thing of the last year for me has been people, especially in the, you know, still now, but in the early parts where no visitors were allowed in the hospital, dying alone, Mm -hmm. nobody there. And with their, you know, the, their medical team who's going in their room, fully covered up in personal protective equipment, looking like sort of some alien figures in the room without being able to touch their hand and have skin to skin contact and Mm -hmm. human touch. It's, it's heartbreaking. So, you know, I think that, that to sort of, for people to have to fight misinformation on top of coping with the trauma and the grief of that is just, it's really hard. Mm -hmm. Um, And so to all the bad players creating this information, please stop. Please shut up. Making (laughs) our job so much harder. Yeah. The last thing anyone wants to do. And actually, I didn't answer your question earlier about the mRNA thing. I don't know if you still- Oh, it's okay. (laughs) No, it's okay. I think there's so much good information in here. And I think for me, especially like you you watch the news, you read articles, you see things on Instagram- yeah. But it's so much more like powerful hearing it from a provider and and especially hearing it from someone who has experienced it this entire time. Yeah. Um, and I think like all of these questions, and I was so surprised at how many questions like people had and like, mm-hmm. and similar questions that everyone had. Yeah. And so I'm hoping that, you know, this does some good for people. And I, I really think it does. And I'm, I'm so like, uh, I admire you for everything that you've done. Like that's, 
I don't know. It's so crazy just how this last year has just really put in perspective, like how amazing providers are, how amazing essential workers are, and just how beneficial it is to listen to science. It's, those are things that we should be relying on. And I'm happy that I don't have too many people in my life who are crazy and who are out doing whatever yeah. they want, <laughs> but there's a couple of them. <laughs> yeah. It's, I mean, it's really interesting too, because kind of like what we were talking about with um, just the way that the pandemic has exposed pre-existing or underlying disparities in health is mm-hmm. that affect, you know, communities of color. I think that there's also sort of like the the way people have responded to the science mm-hmm. has also exposed our evolving um, perspectives of what truth is, mm-hmm. right? Like, you know, the scientific method is one that is meant to be completely objective. Mm-hmm. The whole process of designing a well-done um research study is to eliminate as much potential bias and and potential for subjective factors to influence the results of a question of a question that you're trying to answer Mm -hmm. and so just sort of the idea that we can doubt the truth of some science is I think just a bigger reflection of yeah, the way truth has been manipulated over the last several years, the distrust in science and scientists. And also what what does that mean for sort of like the fabric of society if we can't be on the same page about what truth is, about the simple nature of facts? So I would encourage actually for one resource, there's many, many, many wonderful resources. Um, one that I recently came across Um, that's really great for people that want to dive into the detailed like cellular biology and and sort of um, the science behind the vaccine specifically and other things is called deplatform disease. I have no ties to them. I get no sort of kickbacks (laughs) or anything. I just came across it recently. Uh Um, Yeah, it's called deplatform disease. I think it's like deplatformdisease.com, which has a lot of really great information that, you know, I think if you have hesitancy that's okay. Just sort of go to the right sources to educate um, yourself and get um, all the information available that can help you make an informed decision right. um, as opposed to, you know, self-proclaimed experts on Instagram. Exactly. <laughs> like I came across recently a piece about, um, you know, I think one of the things we talked about earlier with um, the mRNA vaccines and mm-hmm. the way, you know, someone um, on Instagram was claiming that it would permanently alter your DNA and um, cause problems down the line, um, including cancer. But, you know, I think, first of all, if that person had any understanding of cell biology, they would know that there's no plausible way that an mRNA vaccine can alter your DNA. It would just kind of violate everything we know about cell biology because our mRNA vaccines act in the cytosol of the cell. They don't go anywhere near the nucleus where the DNA lives. So, you know, I think if, if, if people want to make claims, they should actually know the science. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I, it's so crazy to me because like, I, last time I took bio was like in high school and I would never in a million years be like, I'm going to write an article about how mRNA changes your DNA. Like it's crazy. I think I, I mean, and just, just to like end it on a light note, I, I would love to know, like, 
what is something that you don't think the regular person knows about providers or your time during COVID that you think they should know? And I really want to know how it felt to be in New York, especially when people were cheering you on every night Mm -hmm. Um, and kind of just being in that environment. Did that help you in any way? Did it make you feel optimistic about that time? I know it was probably so long ago, but I mean, during that time when everything was extremely uncertain. um, Yeah. What were your feelings around that? Yeah. So, I mean, to answer the first part of your question, which was around what should people know? Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, I, I think I've, I've sort of mentioned this a lot, but just there is a sense of collective grief, not only amongst healthcare workers, but everyone to a certain degree. Um, and especially people who had that front row seat in healthcare over the last year, um, I think, you know, the weight of these experiences will remain with us for a really long time. Um, just as far as what I was saying of just like how devastating it is to watch, helplessly watch people die alone, the anxiety, the fear, the overwhelming sense of responsibility, the ethical burden of making hard decisions about who gets a bed and who doesn't, the like frightening reality of what care looks like in a really overwhelmed hospital. Um, and so I think just to sort of know that if you have anyone, a friend, a loved one, you meet someone who has had that front row seat, just sort of hold space for them. They may not have been able to process as I have not, um, a lot of what's happened over the last year, but then also have, have space for yourself and and for each other because I think one thing that has become clear not only to people in healthcare but everyone who's been isolated and 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 doing the right things trying to help collectively protect the most vulnerable people um, has been just the way it's affected our mental health and so I think that that's something we should talk to each other about more and support each other more um, because it's going to be something we continue to process and work through Mm -hmm. even as we inch towards some semblance of normal life again. Um, And it's, you know, I think part of the process of of processing and grieving, it may not always come naturally to people to proactively talk about it. So to check in and just ask each other how, how people are doing because um, silence doesn't indicate that someone's doing okay. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think that's a big thing too, with that. I've, I've tried to start to remind myself to do with my colleagues in healthcare, especially the residents that I work with and the people that have, have had it much harder than me, Mm -hmm. um, as far as their exposure and, 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 and what they've had to witness, especially during training. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, just ask each other how you're doing. And, and, you know, call someone randomly, don't just text them, but call them and Mm -hmm. ask them how they're doing. Um, I was terrible with just sort of ignoring messages for a very long time over the summer, because I just didn't know how to respond or what to say. But I think if someone, you know, had been really persistent in calling me, I probably would have picked up and just Mm -hmm. said, I'm not doing well. Yeah. I mean, Um, it's the simplest thing. I think that's so true of like, just... I mean, especially just checking up on your friends and people who you're around, I think um, the smallest thing could go a really long way. Totally. 
And then the second part of your question about the clapping for cheering, um, which I, I don't know where it started, but it felt like it started in New York. I don't know. Um, oh, I could be wrong, but I think so. Um, it was, it was, it made me cry so many times. <laughs> it was, yeah, it felt like those were the early parts where, um, yeah, where there was so much fear and so much uncertainty. Um, and New York was obviously hit really hard last spring. And <clears throat> you could hear the sound of ambulances every five minutes. Mm-hmm. You know, it felt like the apocalypse. It truly did. Right. Um, and I could see, you know, EMTs on my block almost every day Mm -hmm. I saw like stretchers and um you know I at the hospital we could see um just sort of the way you you, like everyone's read the articles about the refrigerated body trucks all of that so I think that the, the the applause felt like this deeply collective human thing that was just so lovely (laughs) and I wish that we could have done that same applause outside of grocery stores and for like MTA workers and all the other people that were also putting themselves at risk and showing up to work and weren't necessarily being recognized or protected for it. Um, But I also wish that we could do the applause for all the people staying at home and who suffered the cause. I mean, like it's, you know, I I appreciated the gratitude deeply, but I think everyone, most people, not everyone, most people had a role to play and um, community sort of efforts like that were just really heartwarming. Yeah. And I'm honestly, I'm, I admire you so much. I'm so thankful that we even had time to talk about this and I, I appreciate everything that you're doing and thank you so much for taking the time out of your day. I know you're so busy and I think people are going to love this episode and I'm really excited for people to hear it. Yeah. And I'm happy to sort of field other questions that may come up or, or, um, have you all post sort of a list of resources of reliable places to go for more information for those that want to dig a little bit deeper. Yeah, I know. I would love that. Thank you so much, Nori. Is there anything, any last statement that you would want to (laughs) say to people listening? If you had a microphone that went out to the entire world, write this. What would you say? (laughs) Oh man, we'll get through this. That's good. I know. I like that one. (laughs) What I will say, we will definitely get through this. I love that. Thank you so much again. And we will talk soon and hopefully maybe at some point we can have another episode about women's health. Yeah, for sure. Maybe, maybe we can even meet up in person if you come into New York and it's outdoors and you're vaccinated and we can just (laughs) have a a safe little gathering for the CDC now. Yes. I will let you know when I'm vaccinated and which, which one I get. (laughs) Sounds good. Bye. Thank you so much. again.